0: Hello and welcome to ALERT, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. With austerity measures in Greece provoking civil unrest in the Mediterranean country, we get an overview of the Greek economic crisis and how it could be resolved from author and Binghamton University professor James Petrus. We'll speak with Council of Canadians trade campaigner Stuart True about Canada's recent round of trade talks with the European Union. And Winnipeg activist Ken Kalturnik offers his assessment of what is driving the Harper government's efforts to abolish the Canadian Wheat Board.
0: Here are the alert headlines for the week of October 27, 2011. New Democrat leadership candidate Brian Topp has come out in favour of taxing the rich, calling tax benefits for the highest-income Canadians a misplaced priority. Topp also wants to raise corporate tax rates, and has not ruled out an increase in the sales tax once the economy has fully recovered. Topp's primary leadership rival, Quebec MP Thomas Mulcair, was more cautious in revealing his thoughts on the issue, saying only, quote, "...we need a well-thought-out plan to make the tax code simpler and more progressive." Conservative Finance Minister Jim Flaherty said the wealthy do not constitute a large enough portion of the tax base to result in enough tax revenue to run the country. He called Topps' proposals dreamy ideas that are ultimately nonsense. Colonel Gaddafi, the former Libyan head of state who was ousted from power earlier this year, died after the city of Sirte fell to rebel forces on October 20th. His death sparked jubilant celebrations amongst his critics both across Libya and the world. However, both the UN and Amnesty International have called for an independent inquiry into the circumstances surrounding his death, after footage was broadcast suggesting that Gaddafi was first captured alive, then shot and killed. Questions also remain about the future of Libya, which Gaddafi had ruled for the last 42 years and is now being led by the National Transitional Council.
1: The Conservative government has announced legislation to end the Long Gun Registry, legislation which is certain to pass this time around, with the Conservatives now holding a majority of seats in the House of Commons. Conservative MP from Manitoba, Candace Hepner, the Parliamentary Secretary to Public Safety Minister Vic Taves, helped make the announcement. Hepner famously championed a bill to end the Long Gun Registry two years ago before it was narrowly defeated.
0: Those are the alert headlines for the week of October 27, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of October 27, 2011. On Friday, November 4th, from 7 to 11 a.m. in Winnipeg, come to Light's, L-I-T-E's, 15th annual Wild Blueberry Pancake Breakfast. With over 700 attendees last year, it is the largest celebration of community economic development in Canada, attracting dozens of politicians, community leaders, CED practitioners and participants, and many residents of Winnipeg. Catered with locally sourced and produced foods and featuring a local crafter's market and entertainment, the Light Breakfast is a fundraiser for their Christmas Hamper program. Food is purchased from inner-city businesses, then donated to the Christmas Cheerboard for low-income inner-city residents. The breakfast will take place at the Indian and Métis Friendship Centre, 45 Robinson at Dufferin, Tickets are $15 or $5 for low income or ages 7 to 12. Ages 6 and under are free. Available at Light Office, 640 Broadway on the lower level, Mondragon, 91 Albert Street, or at the door.
1: The Second Indigenous Assembly Against Mining and Pipelines is being planned for November 4th through 7th at various locations in Vancouver Coast Salish Territories. It will coincide with the pro-mining, meeting Mines. Making Mines conference being held in the city that weekend. There will be demonstrations and panels. For specific events, locations, and times, search for the Indigenous Assembly Against Mining and Pipelines event on Facebook.
0: The CCPA presents Stephen Lewis and Michelle Landsberg as the featured guests for this year's David Lewis Lecture. The lecture will take place at 7 o'clock p.m. on November 3rd at the Trinity St. Paul Centre in Toronto. Join them for an intimate conversation about their lives, their passions, and the future of this country. Following the lecture, there will be a fundraising social with members of the Lewis family and CCPA Research Associates. For more information or to buy tickets, go to policyalternatives.ca. David Lewis- lecture.
1: The film, The War You Don't See, will be screening on November 4th at 7pm at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at 252 Bloor Street, West, room 2-212.
0: That's all for Around the Left for the week of October 27th, 2011.
1: Governments in the Eurozone have been struggling desperately to manage a continent-wide debt crisis which threatens to engulf countries like Italy and Spain. One prong of the Eurozone plan has been to reduce Greece's debt burden in order to climb out of an insurmountable debt hole. Austerity measures imposed on Greece, however, have not been popular with the Greek citizenry. To help us better understand the the bind that Greece is in and uh, where they go from here is James Petrus. James Petrus is the Bartle Professor of Sociology at Binghamton University. So, James Petrus, welcome to Alert. Could you maybe help us understand a little bit better? How did Greece come to be in such a, a bad uh, state of affairs?
2: It- it goes back to, uh, Greece's entry into the, uh, European Union, uh, Greece was a, uh, a poor country to begin with. It had, uh, virtually no manufacturing to speak of, uh, backward agriculture, highly dependent on tourism, uh, and, uh, as a result, and its entry to the European Union, uh, wasn't in a very competitive, uh, position. Uh, it did receive economic transfers from the Union, essentially to uh, increase its uh, economic capacity, but uh, none of the loans were supervised. Essentially, the Greek political elite used the money to build patronage machines and uh, as a result of that, uh Greece accumulated debt without actually increasing its uh productive capacity. Most of the money went into uh into projects that enriched a few but uh did not employ many. As a result, the government bureaucracy uh, ballooned, uh and uh it became increasingly a tourist playground with very little uh, capacity to absorb its uh, increasingly uh, highly educated labor force. Uh, on top of that, uh, Greek politicians were extremely corrupt. Uh, bankers in Europe uh, were able to uh, uh, reap uh, high interest rates. So, uh, there was no overall regulation of the economy, and the kind of capitalism that became prevalent in Greece was essentially based on, uh, government contracting and, uh, and a lack of any real commitment to developing any, uh, new markets overseas. And that's, uh, the point at which, uh, the European Union bears principal uh, uh, blame here because essentially the money went into Greece and into the pockets of the elite without uh, uh, any long-term perspective. That is, salaries increased, uh, uh, government jobs proliferated, uh, bankers collected their interest, and... uh, it was just a matter of time before the downturn in the economy uh, blew this uh, system up. Greece accumulated debt. They, they, The Greek government cooked the books uh, uh, literally in the sense that uh, they invented the data on uh, growth, on exports, on earnings, on revenues, uh, about five times greater than what they really were. As a result, when the crisis hit uh, under the uh, uh, socialist uh, government, uh, it was not able to uh, find resources uh, to repay the debt, and therefore it began to uh, cut social programs, and uh, that led in turn to uh, job losses, and job losses and... And, uh, and social and economic cuts in wages weakened the domestic market, which is already uh, underdeveloped to begin with. And you got into a vicious circle. The greater the austerity to pay the bankers, uh, the more, uh, weaker the demand, the less the revenues for the government. And, and it went in a circle from, uh, 7% unemployment and 2009, uh, 2008, I'm sorry, uh, it's reached uh, 17.5% as of today. So it's more than doubled. Uh, wages have been cut 25%. Salaries in, uh, salaried officials and, uh, government employees have been reduced by about 35,000 people. Uh, pensions have been cut by 20%. So, uh, there's reason why, uh, there's protest, that is, most working people never saw the benefits of the loans that have been incurred. Many of the loans were incurred by private businesses, which then passed them on to the government, and the government now has become essentially a, uh, uh, a collector, of uh, debt payments, and, uh, enforcing these uh, austerity measures on the population that the great sense of injustice because the professional classes this uh, wealthy uh, businesses uh, pay the lowest tax rates officially uh, than any country in in Europe and among the lowest in the world because there's massive tax evasion in Greece by anyone that is not uh, subject to uh, to direct deductions at the payroll taxes. So uh, there's injustices everywhere in Greece. People that didn't uh, uh, incur the debt are now forced to pay it. Uh, people that uh, borrowed money uh, are not the ones paying for the debt. Mm. Uh, it's uh, it's a a situation in which people's living standards have reversed to what they were uh, 30, 40 years ago, and people are leaving the country, young professionals are packing mm-hmm. their bags and looking elsewhere, though. They're also the climate will... situation in the rest of Europe is not very uh, promising.
1: Yeah, And people are, are rebelling against it, they're striking, they're, they're leaving... Well, their... there's
2: been uh, at least a dozen general strikes over the last three years, and they're continuing with increasing violence, because the government ignores protest they don't sit down and say well what what can we do to lessen tensions how can we compromise uh... etc rather than than recognize the uh, enormous uh, majority that rejects these programs the government simply is at the beck
1: and call of the bankers. but it still seems though that under those sorts of circumstances that uh, i mean if the idea is to uh, that the greece should start to Uh, improve its situation economically. I mean, there has to be some economic activity. And I guess the economic activity, it's not going to be generated by by workers, obviously.
2: Well, the workers are the ones that produce the goods and services in the country. Uh, You have a capitalist class that has enormously benefited from government handouts and uh, European transfers. Those no longer function. So the businessmen are are going bankrupt or taking their money out of the country. Uh, uh, Some of them are holding bonds on the government. They're going to lose out because the government's not not in a position to keep meeting these bond payments. Uh, There's prognostication of about a 10-year crisis in Greece. That is virtually no growth, no development and uh, a, a long-term slide in living standards. That's that's the forecast for Greece. And, and it's predictable because you cannot pay debts by squeezing the population because that undermines the source of revenues that would fi- allow you to pay some of the debt. So instead of postponing or defaulting on the debt, restarting a a growth process, and then down the line, beginning some sort of negotiated payments of debts, uh, they've done the opposite. They've uh, killed the cow that produces the uh, milk, and therefore, there's no way that Greece can ever uh, repay even the interest on, on the loans.
1: So, uh, what then is the uh, what would be a better strategy for uh, well, rescuing strategy Greece? If is not, well, the strategy that
2: took place in Argentina in uh, in in the uh, early part of this decade, they defaulted on their debt, they uh, clamped down on the financial speculators, they increased taxes on the wealthy, they oriented their uh, economy toward uh, producing more more efficiently. And uh, they simply uh, wrote down about uh, 80% of the debt and began paying uh, five years later about uh, 20% of what the original debt was. Now, they were cut off from financial markets. They couldn't borrow, uh, but they became self-financing and have been growing at 8% uh, since 2003 with a very small a decrease in 2009 because of the world recession of less than 1%, but they've bounced back this year. They're growing at about 8%, and their future is very bright. Big trade surpluses, uh, social spending has tripled over the last few years, uh, and instead of uh, creating poverty, they're reducing poverty.
1: Well, James Petrus, uh, we really uh, appreciate uh, those perspectives on this uh, unraveling economic uh, situation. Uh, I want to thank you for for joining us and, and sharing those views with us here on Alert.
2: Okay, Michael. Thank you for having me. Bye.
1: Bye. And that was James Petrus, Bartle, Professor of Sociology at Binghamton University in New York. Farmers and farm groups have been staging rallies and demonstrations across all three prairie provinces in response to the Harper government's plan to remove the Canadian Wheat Board's monopoly over wheat and barley sales. Farmers voted recently in a plebiscite in which the majority expressed their desire to maintain the single desk. The Conservatives, meanwhile, have no intention of altering their plans for the CWB. What is behind their determination to alter this decades-long institution? To help answer these questions, we're joined in the studio by Ken Kalturnik. Ken Kalturnik is a Winnipeg-based activist, and uh, he will be speaking shortly on the the whole topic of class interests behind the Canadian Wheat Board uh, plans by the Conservatives. So, uh, Ken Kalturnik, welcome to Alert.
3: Thanks, Michael. Nice to be here.
1: Okay, so could you, first of all... Address some of the the talking points of the conservatives. They say that this is really about you know freedom for farmers who who choose to go be outside the the single desk, and you know, it's about liberty and and freedom and and so forth. Is there anything to that kind of logic in your view?
3: Uh, no, it's just to cover up whose interests they're really serving, uh, which is the the grain monopolies, Cargill, uh, ADM, and um, Monsanto. And the railways, for quite frankly, that they, those interests have been pushing since the 1940s to get rid of the wheat board. They, they don't like having farmers united, having a cooperative uh, marketing agency, and because it uh, limits the the amount that they can squeeze them in terms of. Of prices. Mm-hmm.
1: So if this pressure has been applied uh, for, you know, going back to the 1940s, I mean, what are some examples of ways in which they've tried to uh, get their way? Has it been to, to try to re- simply remove the monopoly?
3: And Well, they've been uh, lobbying government on and off since then. Um, in fact, the, the first time there was a, a wheat board was just after the First World War. It lasted for a year and then was disbanded because of pressure from the railways and the and the grain monopolies—they've um, been—they've been trying in various ways, and particularly since uh, the advent of policies of neoliberalism, they've stepped up the pressure. And in the '90s, there was a lot of pressure to, um, like, use the WTO and and various trade agreements to uh, force the government to disband the wheat board. And so the the question that occurred to me is. Why have they, I mean, they have a lot of economic clout and political clout. Why haven't they succeeded up until now in, in pushing through this agenda? Because, quite frankly, it doesn't matter what the various political parties say. Uh, for a long time, the federal government has been willing to sacrifice the wheat board, whether it's a liberal government or a conservative government, so... Hmm.
1: Well, you say that for for a long time they they've been there's been a willingness to do that. What has been the uh, the obstacle up till now?
3: Well, it seems to me the obstacle has been the political pressure of small farmers. Uh, they've been fighting to to save the wheat board. Uh, I mean, the, the other the other factor is that the wheat board is very very good at what it does. Um, it's probably unmatched internationally in terms of its expertise and its ability to. Um, to sell grain at a, at a reasonable price for, for Canadian farmers. So, you know, it's been very difficult for governments to, to justify getting rid of it. So that's why the, the Conservatives have framed it in terms of freedom of choice and all these things that they, they know as a fraud because they know that uh, from past experience that a wheat board without a monopoly simply can't survive.
1: Mm. Now is it possible that there may be some farmers that that could benefit from this uh uh the dismantling of the wheat board especially some of the the vocal ones that uh, that voted against uh, or voted well, against uh, the uh monopoly
3: I'm sure there are some who have already profited from it because uh, there there have been um claims that that some of the spokespeople at least for the anti uh, wheat board uh, campaign have actually been financed by uh, by Monsanto and Cargill and others in the railways. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, I'm sure that in the short term, uh, bigger farmers hope to see some benefits from it, and, and possibly will in the short term, uh, in terms of uh, uh, basically wiping out small farmers and then expanding at their expense in the long term i think even those farmers are uh deluding themselves if they think that just because they own two or three times the land that they do now that they're going to be on equal footing with cargill or cnr or cp or or whoever is is squeezing them so in the long term i think all farmers will will suffer by it but um in the short term, there are some uh, bigger, wealthier farmers who hope to profit from it by gobbling up their neighbors. Basically,
1: mm-hmm. um, could you maybe spell out, a, a li- elaborate a little bit more? Uh, you, you mentioned the railways and these big agribusiness firms. Uh, how do you see them? Uh, you know, I, as as the the wheat board is, is dismantled, how, how do you see them uh, profiting? Like the The direction of the funds and and so forth and the, from an everyday practical perspective
3: well first without without the wheat board, the big grain buying companies can pretty much set whatever rate they want and uh, there <coughs> excuse me, there are farmers, especially some uh, larger young farmers who think they can you know because they have the ability to use the internet and they can play commodity markets and things like that that they're going to get rich but i think that's an illusion and uh, in the in the short in the short term i think that the uh, grain monopolies are simply going to start depressing the prices that they pay to, to farmers that's been their historical pattern the railways without the wheat board there which has been the main uh, instrument for farmers to get reasonable uh, shipping rates. Without the wheat board, there, uh, farmers are going to be at the mercy of the railways again. Uh, they can. Canada has Canadian farmers have the longest distance to ship to sea of any country in in the world, and uh, so the the railways basically have them by the throat. Mm.
1: Uh, are there any other misconceptions that, uh, say, everyday <clears throat> Canadians have about farms and and farming in, in the modern era, and um, you know the the difficulties in terms of uh, selling their wheat and well, growing it and selling it.
3: In in what sense? Uh... Well, I guess
1: in the sense of uh, selling abroad, in terms of um, what. You know the, the, what the role that the, the Canadian Wheat Board might have in, in making their lives more uh, easier.
3: Okay. Well, the Wheat Board, like I say, is is one of the best in the world, marketing agencies in the world in terms of mm-hmm. uh, finding markets for grain, getting the best price possible, for guaranteeing those markets high quality uh, grain that you know the quality that they've they've ordered. Um, Big grain monopolies are, because they are in a monopoly position, they uh, treat their customers uh, pretty much how they want, and uh, they treat their suppliers pretty much how they want. So uh, farmers will be deprived of any independent agency to uh, look for those international markets. Their grain will be pooled with, with whatever other grain that the Cargill or ADM or whatever um have on hand and they'll be be going to whatever markets they determine that grain should go to so they'll be pretty much at the mercy of of those grain markets mhm
1: now is it possible to i mean should this <coughs> experiment uh if farmers should later on decide that they, they want to go back to that single desk, is, is there going to be, isn't it possible we could just turn it around and reestablish it?
3: Uh, not very easily, because uh, then uh, various trade agreements do kick in. Uh, once you, you know, if you already have an existing agency like that, there's grandfathering clauses that protect them. And and uh, even then, there have been challenges through the WTO and through NAFTA, uh, against the Wheat Board. But uh, they haven't succeeded. But uh, once you eliminate that, uh, they basically make it impossible to reestablish it. Uh, So then, I mean, essentially, at that point, uh, the Canadian government would have to uh, withdraw from those kinds of of agreements uh, in order to uh, reestablish the Wheat Board and... uh, I don't see any of the governments that we're likely to have in the near future having the, the guts to do that, quite frankly. Mm-hmm.
1: Of course, we have a majority conservative government, and mm-hmm. uh, they can pretty much do as they will. Um, do you see any reasonable prospect for being able to turn this around?
3: There are... I know there are a lot of things going on. There's maneuvers taking place in Parliament to try to block them. Uh, there are uh, challenges in the uh, federal court system to block them. And, um, I mean, hopefully one or more of those uh, tactics will be successful in the short term. But I think, uh, in my view, in the long term, because the economic base of small farmers is collapsing so rapidly, that even if the wheat board is saved in the short term, in the long term, unless farmers... Uh, Change their basic attitude towards the the way that farming is carried out in Canada. unless they form producer co-ops where they pool their land and and their capital and their labor, uh, there's no way that they can compete with the large farmers and uh, or with the, the various agribusiness companies. Okay.
1: Well, Ken Caltronic, I want to thank you for providing us with that rather timely perspective, and uh, in advance of your coming talk at uh, Aqua Books, um, certainly look forward to uh, hearing uh, what's discussed at that uh, at that event. So, thank yep. you for joining us on Alert.
3: Uh, thank you for inviting me.
1: And that was Ken Caltronic. He is a Winnipeg-based activist. The ninth round of negotiations between Canada and the European Union has just completed in Ottawa. And uh, there's been uh, some contention with regard to uh, what exactly was discussed, what's on the table, and what the future, what lies in the future for this uh, free trade agreement. Joining us by phone is Council of Canadians. Trade campaigner Stuart True to talk about the past week of negotiations and uh, you know what what are the prospects of this deal uh, going ahead? So thanks uh, for joining us again on Alert, Stuart. Oh, thanks, Michael. Okay, so Stuart, first of all, I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit. Of, there was a, a press conference that took place last Thursday in which the the trade minister spoke but didn't say anything, and uh, journalists were apparently kept a little bit. Uh, uh, Mum, about the details? Maybe you could explain. Uh, this was a somewhat unusual press conference, as I understand it.
4: Yeah, I mean, it did sound very odd. Uh, you're right. Uh, I, I know what was reported in Embassy Magazine, which was, I think, the only uh, source to kind of talk about what went down. But essentially, um, essentially the minister, uh, International Trade Minister Ed Fast, invited journalists to come down and get an update on the status of the negotiations and there was a big announcement apparently um, services and investment offers have been exchanged and so uh, we were expecting this to happen um, they brought in the European and Canadian lead trade negotiators to, to brief the media on this and uh, apparently after the briefing uh, the government came back into the room and said, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to attribute any of this to either of the negotiators. So, <laughs> so just, you know, try and write your articles without actually mentioning what you've just heard today from these negotiators. So, I, I mean, that was quite incredible uh, to me, uh, considering that these uh, negotiators, at least the Canadian negotiator, quite frequently briefs. Uh, NGOs and academics and others uh, after each round and you know we just print whatever he says online so I, I was surprised to see that the media was being told not to print anything that they heard that day. Mm.
1: Well we know that these negotiations have been somewhat secretive to begin with um, could you maybe comment or or speculate even on on what concerns the Canadian government has about uh, you know, scrutiny of this deal?
4: Well, I mean, I mean, this is a very secretive and I would say anti-democratic or very undemocratic government we have at the moment. Um, if you see them operate in committees, uh, they can be very spiteful and very rude to anyone who disagrees with what the government is doing. Um, frequently now, they, they actually shut committees down or they go in camera during important and even trivial votes. You know, on procedures. So we have a, a, you know, at heart, an undemocratic government. So I'm, I'm not surprised that they're trying to keep the CETA talks as quiet as possible. Um, I was surprised that <laughs> they were blocking media from actually saying what the negotiators had just told them. I, I'm surprised the media actually listened to that. and mm-hmm. Didn't run the details anyway. But I mean, um, what they're trying to do is to to pass this thing as quickly as possible with as few hitches as possible and, and negotiate it, um, you know, without involving the public, because if they, they, I think they know if they involve the public, they're not going to get as far or as fast as um, as they would like to. So I'm not surprised at all.
1: Could you maybe remind us uh, of, of the Council of Canadians position? I mean, what the, the major bones of contentions you have, uh, particularly about this deal, based on what you've learned through leaks and, and discussion and so forth?
4: Yes. Well, I mean, like you said, first off, uh, we are opposed to the secrecy. We don't think there's any reason these days to have um, negotiations on a trade deal as important as this, which de- deals with areas that go well beyond trade. I mean, this is—we're talking about uh, public policy here. We're talking about uh, the ability of governments to regulate public services. We're talking about how municipalities spend public funds. You know, putting restrictions on the, how they spend. Intellectual property changes in the area of copyright and and drug patents, <clears throat> possibly um, possibly uh, you know seed protection for farmers, the right to to resell or save seeds, for example. So, we're you know we're into the area of really economic reform, a major economic reform agreement that really should be democratized. I think so. that's that's our main concern, and it's shared by it's shared now by over eighty organizations who put a statement out last week at the conclusion of the negotiations uh-huh. this is a transatlantic group of organizations calling for an end to the CETA negotiations uh... and uh, and complete transparency so we can see what's in this deal But uh-huh. um, uh, beyond that if if we do get into the specifics the council of canadians in particular among these eighty organizations the council has focused on uh... the effect this might have on On water, for example, we know that the European Union would like to include drinking water services in its, uh, in the deal. So basically, they would like to encourage the creation of a, of a competitive market for water services in Canada, drinking and sanitation. And so we're going to see more privatization of our public water systems under CETA. We're concerned about the procurement chapter, which, um, has been very controversial among, among this, Among the news articles, I should say, about CETA, procurement comes up a lot because it really is about municipal governments and how they spend public money and making sure that uh, CETA would actually actually ban them from applying uh, local preferences or local sustainable development conditions or other uh, local development conditions on public spending. And then finally, the investment protections that are going to be given to Canadian and European firms in this that could go beyond what, what Mexican and U.S. and Canadian firms got in NAFTA in terms of the right to sue um, provincial governments, European Union states for, uh, for for damages in the event that public policies, regulations, other other public health measures actually interfere with profits. And so, we don't want to see that reproduced in CETA and perhaps strengthened now based on what we've seen of where the European Union would like to go with investments. It could actually be a worse agreement than we have in NAFTA. So. Uh, those are our main concerns, but by no means the exclusive ones.
1: Stuart, do you uh, have any indications of uh, points of uh, contention between the Canadian and European Union negotiators, anything that could possibly sink the deal?
4: Sure. Well, we whatever we hear in the news, really, I mean, there were some articles last week that repeated what we already knew about the points of contention. I mean... Agricultural policy has been difficult globally in trade in trade negotiations, but in particular because the European Union does have uh, many subsidies for for its farmers, uh, which other countries have been complaining about. And in Canada, there's areas like supply management of the dairy, poultry, and and eggs uh, sector. So these are these are difficult areas. Procurement we understand is difficult. The European Union would like to see a very um, complete coverage of Canadian governments, you know, from the municipal level, hospital school boards, utilities, power entities, transit, that kind of thing, and apparently they're not happy with Canada's offer so far, so that could be difficult. There's intellectual property is a major interest for the European Union. They want to see Canada basically adopt Europe's style of intellectual property protection, and that would be for copyright, and that would also be for drugs, so a uh, significant strengthening. Uh, in the interests of large monopol- monopolists, basically the monopoly um, uh, drug firms, and uh, in, the, in terms of copyright, you're looking at uh, you know, more more power, I suppose, more monopoly rights for the large rights holders, whether they're you know large film producers or music um, music producers as well. So, so these these could be difficult for Canada make concessions on, although although Europe's made it very clear, uh, the European Union, I should say, excuse me, that they won't uh, be satisfied with the deal that does not go significantly down that road. Um, there's also, you know, the areas of rules of rules of origin, so, you know, Europe um, and Canada uh, debating what counts as a Canadian lobster, for example. There's a lobster caught by Canadian fishing boats in U.S. waters count as a Canadian lobster. <laughs> I don't think lobsters. is Uh, the same kinds of citizenship as we do. But anyway, these things count in in trade law and automobiles as well. So, you know, what is a Canadian car? Well, I mean, it doesn't exist, right? There is North American cars. And so uh, the European Union having trouble agreeing to let certain car automotive products into the European Union.
1: Now, we're seeing um, a lot of um, uh, economic chaos uh, gripping the European Union these days, uh, I'm wondering, do you see any prospect of, of that element of of the whole thing possibly interrupting uh, interest in this deal uh, on this side of the Atlantic?
4: Um, on this side, on the on Canada's side, no, I don't see any lowering based on what's happened of the interest on the Canadian side. Harper's, the Harper government's committed to this deal. It has said again and again that it considers a trade deal with the European Union as a core plank of its economic action plan. It's now saying that this deal is going to create 80,000 jobs and put a thousand dollars in everyone's wallet <laughs> per year. I, I mean, they're just these—they're grabbing these things out of thin air at this point to, to justify it. But I mean, what it tells us is that they're very set on this. I think where you might see interest waning, however, is on the Europe, European Union side. And there were articles recently uh, suggesting that some European Union member states or officials in those states would like to put the Canadian negotiations on the slow burner while they deal with what they consider more important trade talks for example with India or with uh, uh, or with um, Latin America mm-hmm. and so you know I think, there, I think you're right when you say uh, there are areas where the trade talks could fall apart on their own I think what we're going to be trying to do with the Council of Canadians and Trade Justice Network is going to be uh, is going to be creating the the public opposition basically fostering public opposition to this deal which I think is growing which I think we saw this month it's growing um, and if there's no appetite for a trade deal then it's going to increase the chances I think that that, uh, the negotiations could fall apart and I don't think this would have in any way a negative impact on the Canadian economy I think those groups who are saying that um the trade deal is uh, vital. I think I saw the word vital uh, by the C.D. Howe Institute. I think they're just blowing this way out of proportion. I mean, vital is air is vital to to us, you know, for us to live, right? I don't think that this trade deal, I don't think that you can in any way say that this is vital to the Canadian economy at this point.
1: Okay, finally, Stuart, could you maybe just, uh, do you have any message for uh, our listeners? uh, Anything that they might want to do to... uh, um, address the concerns you have about CETA?
4: Sure, yeah, definitely. Um, the Council of Canadians is putting out an action alert today um, calling on all provinces to make their offers public. So these are the services and the, uh, the procurement, like the, the, the municipal governments, for example, and the investment policies that they're willing to uh, commit, that they're willing to put... Um, new trade rules on basically under this Canada European Union trade agreement. For what people can do right away would be to demand that uh, a public debate happen in Manitoba, to see what's on the table, to debate it, to see if it goes too far, and then to decide as the public, as, the, as a population, as voters, uh, whether, whether they want the province to continue to be a part of these negotiations.
1: Okay, thanks again, Stuart, for joining us on Alert and uh, sharing those perspectives with us.
4: I appreciate it very much, Michael. Thanks.
1: Okay. And that was Stuart True. He's the trade campaigner for the Council of Canadians speaking to us uh, on uh, the recent round of negotiations on the Canada-European Union Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement.
5: Hi. This is Mitch Podolik, this is Music is a Weapon, and today we're going back to 1937, 1938, to the Spanish Civil War, and we're going to listen to some great pieces of music. I'm very familiar with Pete Seeger's album, and I've had that album since I was a little kid, and when I began to research this a little bit, I found a whole bunch of new songs that I'd never heard before. To start with, here is The Fifth Regiment. (music)
6: El 18 de julio, en el patio de un convento, el pueblo madrileño fundó el quinto regimiento. Anda jaleo, jaleo, ya se acabó el alboroto, y vamos al tiroteo, y vamos al tiroteo. Con Lister y Campesino, con Galán y con Modesto, con el Comandante Carlos, no hay milicia, no con miedo. Anda jaleo, jaleo, y se acabó el alboroto y vamos al tiroteo. Vamos al tiroteo con los cuatro batallones que a Madrid están defendiendo. Se va lo mejor de España, la flor más roja del pueblo. Anda jaleo, jaleo, ya se acabó el alboroto y vamos al tiroteo, y vamos al tiroteo. Quinto Con el quinto Regimiento Madre yo me voy Al frente Para las líneas De fuego manda Jaleo, jaleo Ya se acabó El alboroto Y vamos al tiroteo Y vamos Al tiroteo
5: Civil War, but a lot of people got involved in the Civil War from all over the world. They came to support the Republic and fight against fascism. And in Germany, Where fascism was huge, and of course Hitler was in power, came a whole group of people to become part of the International Brigades, the Tailman Brigade, and other people came and joined the anarchists in the poem to fight against fascism. German actor, singer, theater director Ernst Busch went to Spain and he fought against fascism, and he led a great choir there right in the middle of the battle, you can hear the cannons going back. And you can hear the, the fight going on Wallace, the choir is singing. It's quite neat on that old album. Ernst Busch recorded all kinds of things outside of this album. I've just found a whole bunch of them. And here he is leading Rotis Madrid. Rotes
7: Madrid. Halt stand! Rotes Madrid! Halt stand! Rotes Welt Madrid! Halt stand!
8: Madrid! Das
7: Schicken dir die Faschisten Auch ihre Söldner ins Land Sie alle werden zerbrechen An deinem Widerstand Als Stadt Großes Vertret, Als Stadt Großes Verdeckt Das Weltheim Hölt die Menschheit Blüht
8: wegen
7: uns verwehren, an deiner Seite zu sein. Die kühnsten Kämpfer auf Erden marschieren in deinen Reihen. Galtstadt, großes Vertritt. Galtstadt, großes Vertritt. Das Weltmeinbrück, die Menschheit Welt blüht, wie der Gehr.
5: Barricades, and before that, Rodas Madrid. They make you want to get up and get a gun and go shoot a fascist. I like songs like that. They make me feel real good. One of the things that's happened is 73 years since the Spanish Civil War, and these songs have been kicking around all that time, and the folk community, of course, picked them up in the 1950s, which wasn't that long from the Spanish Civil War. But as the folk community has developed, so have songwriters, and have taken some of these old songs and kind of given them their own special kind of uh, rewrite and trying to make them more modern Christy Moore who's an Irish songwriter, great Irish songwriter took one of my favorite old songs Viva la quince barragada Viva the 15th Brigade and he's rewritten it and I think you're going to find this really neat And ten years before I saw
9: the light of morning A comradeship
5: of heroes
9: was laid From every corner of the world came sailing. The 15th International Brigade They came to stand beside the Spanish people To try and stem the rising fascist tide Franco's allies were the powerful and wealthy Frank Ryan's men came from the other side Even the olives were bleeding the battle for Madrid it's under on. To root in love against the force of evil Brotherhood against the fascist land Fever let keep the brigada Nor pass around the pledge to let him fight is to cry around the hillside all remember them tonight. Bob Hillard, was a Church of Ireland pastor from Killarney across the Pyrenees, he came. From there he came a brave young Christian brother. Side by side they fought and died in Spain. And Tommy Woods at seventeen died in Cordoba. With the theater he learned to hold a gun. From Dublin to the Via del Rio, where he far and died beneath the Spanish song. We the lucky never again, nor pass around the pledged that made him fight. Adelante is the cry around the hillside. Let us all remember them tonight. May I wish. Heard the call of Franco Joined Hitler and Mussolini too Propaganda from the pulpit and newspapers Helped got Duffy to enlist his crew And the words came from the news support the Nazis The men of Clothy failed again But the bishops blessed the blue shirts in Dun as the sail beneath the swastika to Spain Viva la lucky brigade, No pastor and the pledge that made him fight Adelante is the cry around the hillside Let us all remember them tonight This song is a tribute to Frank Ryan kid Conway and Denny Cody too Peter Daly, Charlie Regan And Hugh Bonner The many died to can but never few Danny Boyle Blazer Brown And Charlie Donnelly Liam Tomlinson And Jim for From the Falls Jack Neldy Tommy Patton And Frank Conroy Jim Foley Tony Fox And Dick O'Neill Bregada No puss around the Pledge that made him fight Tagalante Is the cry around the hillside Let us all remember them Tonight Viva la Quinta brigada. Let us all Remember them tonight evil la Quinta brigada. So soul will remember them tonight
10: From the farms, from the cities, from every land Came the Abe Lincoln Brigade With a dream in their hearts Gun in their hands, the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No pass it on, no pass it on, so sang the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, cries from the cities, shouts from the hills. The abraham lincoln brigade the fire in the hearts that is warming us still the abraham lincoln brigade no on, no on. so sang the abe lincoln brigade across the years and the oceans we still sing the song of the abraham lincoln brigade The abe lincoln brigade their stories still thrill me we work side by side with the abraham lincoln brigade no pass around, no pass around, so sang the abe lincoln brigade Across the years and the oceans we still sing the song the abraham lincoln brigade Glasses and voices, give them a toast. Oh, the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Those who die best are the ones who live most, like the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No, pass it on, no, pass it on. So sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade. Across the years and the oceans, we still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. No pass it on, no pass it on So sang the Abe Lincoln Brigade Across the ears and the oceans Still sing the song of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade
5: was john mccutcheon with the abraham lincoln brigade and before that Christy moore with viva la quincea brigada and that's it for this week folks long live the memory of the martyrs who fought against this fascism in spain solidarity
1: well that's our show for this week thanks for being with us we'll be here next week at this time if you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website and canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The
0: executive producer of Canadian... <sighs> Sorry. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Cy Technical producer is Andrew Valpi, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert Headlines and Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is The Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton.
1: And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.